This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. The young shining cuckoo is fed by its foster parents on insects and spiders. But the korimako, or bellbird, has a much more interesting diet of nectar. It's been something of a radio personality and has sung on shortwave radio to Australia and the Pacific nations for 30 years. However, the early recordings failed to reflect the versatility of the bellbird, with its wide variety of liquid notes and artistically placed clicks and bell-like sounds. It's not surprising that Maori mythology describes Korimako, the bellbird, as the messenger of Tane, sent to herald the coming of the sun. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or Chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Good day, friends. Today we have um, Victor Bello, who is a uh, founding member of the New Labour Party and a former candidate for the Alliance Party, small parties on the left that tried to stop neoliberalism and Roger Douglas had some success but failed to stop the process of of uh, downgrading the welfare state. He's the uh, commun- National Communications Officer for the Maritime Union in New Zealand. Still the case? Yep, sure is. Well, that's good work. And we're going to have Libby on by Zoom in a few minutes, Libby Fiat is a University of Photography, Philosophy, and Politics and Economics student who's the producer of a or radio show, Noticing Neoliberalism. You can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcast and then going to Community Chaos. Good day, Libby and Victor. Hello, Marvin. How are you? Good. How are you, Libby? Not yet. Yeah. We'll start off with Victor since he's here. <laughs> I've, I've, I've materialized in the physical realm. <laughs> um, what is social in the, in the context of ATRO in the 21st century? Well, that's starting with a um, nice small question that we can answer in um, 20 seconds, no doubt. Um, (laughs) Well, I don't actually know. This is a very good question. I I think, um, just to give a little bit of context, um, I've been um, floating around with these ideas for a little while now and then thinking about them, um, as you've mentioned. Um, I think it's a kind of important question because... um, I think what obviously we have a social and economic system in New Zealand, Aotearoa, at the moment, which is uh, a form of capitalism, and I think it's uh, similar to the system that is in most developed countries around the world. Um, unfortunately, there's a number of problems with it, which we're um, seeing. Largely, they are based on economic issues such as inequality and power and control, um, and also on the um, 
side of the, the the big questions, I guess you could also say the um, climate crisis and other problems with the environment, which are being caused by human activity. So that's what we've got at the moment. It's causing problems, and um, socialism has always been a kind of alternative system to capitalism. I think the types of socialism you've seen in the past, uh, people tend to think of either... Uh, Describe it as something that you might have seen in some kind of Eastern Bloc country in the Cold War, or they might say it as a kind of like sometimes they'll say it was a system like we had uh, in the 1960s and 70s in New Zealand. I'd argue that neither of those uh, were socialism, but I'd, I think it really it is a system that's based around equality and um, democratic input and um, seeks to get around the problems we have at the moment with the environment. Very broad uh, broad brush answer to a broad brush question, but maybe we could uh, chip into it a little bit. All right. Um, Libby, very briefly, what prompted you to do a radio program on neoliberalism? And um, after that, what does socialism mean to you? Um, <clears> Hi, <throat> hey, um, I kind of decided to because I feel like neoliberalism isn't really talked about a lot. And I don't know, it's kind of like when you talk about capitalism, neoliberalism is like, the worst version really of capitalism it's um capitalism and just taken <laughs> to the extreme um and since i have always been really interested in this space but i only really started learning about neoliberalism a couple of years into uni i was like i feel like this just needs to be talked about more and understood more so i decided it would be cool to, to do that um so that's really what prompted me there and um, socialism to me is just it's what, what seems at the moment a feasible alternative to what we have. Like um, I'm a big believer in having the state provide things like education and healthcare and things like that, and that's much more socialist policies. And I just think those should get much more funded by the government and um all of that seems like a much better alternative to what we have at the moment. So, yeah. Okay. Victor, I um, actually, I think we need a stronger mode of socialism. I don't mean like Russia or China, but it appears to me that capitalism has a natural tendency to grow and control. And if it's not controlled, it, it does what it's doing right now to the environment and to human beings. Um, the worst example, of course, is the coal and oil company, but they're not the only example by any means. So doesn't it also mean how do we make economics democratic? Well, I think that's always been the kind of um, the goal of socialism. Back in the um, early days, it was seen as um, uh, another word for it was economic democracy, like we have a kind of democracy now where you get to vote every three years, and yeah, certainly um, that's an advance on what went before. Um, but it doesn't mean full democracy because a lot of the 
control and power in society is, of course, economic control and power. And the reality, um, whether you think it's good or bad, is that is concentrated with some people. So some people have a lot more power and control over um, the direction of society than, than others. <clears throat> so I think that um, certainly, um, you know, as um, Libby was just saying, um, you know, it's, it's really interesting to hear um, a younger person, I'm, I'm now 50, so I'm no longer a young person, sadly, um, talk about what um, socialism means to them and neoliberalism too, which is something that, of course, has been around. As, you know, I remember when I was um, first interested and involved in politics, as would be, be 30 years ago, you know, and it was like that. these were the questions that are around then, and in some ways they haven't changed very much, which um, is a little bit depressing in some ways because um, there's certainly been lots of attempts to um, move away from um, this neoliberal model of capitalism that w- we have experienced more in the last... 20 or 30 years. Um, I think uh, it's been a little bit um, knocked on the head recently. I mean, the governments are quite interventionist in some ways these days, especially when we have a banking crisis, but they're not so interventionist when it comes to uh, the common good or public welfare like health and education, as Libby was saying. So those things in themselves aren't socialism, but I think any socialist or socialist such as myself um, would see... Um, you know, a, a more active um, attempts by a centrist government to help with things like, um, you know, people be educated, housed, um, the health system, th- things like that um, are all things that are, that are good. And I think that they actually moved, they show us the advantages of a more socialist system. Um, when I say, and just I guess it's worth saying that there's no, I don't really see socialism as some kind of utopia. I see it as a work in progress. I think we've, put, we've there's been plenty of attempts to create a kind of perfect system. I don't think they exist, um, but I think that it is moving towards a um, a better way of doing things, which is perfectly rational, and I think uh, is we we need to do it. All right, how do you? How do you monitor or control the top 1% of society that um, control the economy? Well, that's a good question, too. I don't know. Does Libby want to have a, have a crack at um, figuring out how we uh, get control of the top 1% of society? <laughs> yeah, um, well... It's a question that would be nice to have a good answer to. Um, <laughs> I think a big part of it is not letting the 1%, well, really, like, it gets to the 0.1% have so much wealth concentrated in them. Like, um, and a big part of <clears throat> preventing their power being concentrated there is a move away from a lot of the neoliberal policies and the deregulation that has happened over the last 40 years and um, then that's, those are things like um, maybe increasing the uh, highest tax bracket and things like that. I mean, I think in the 50s or 60s, the highest tax bracket got up to 80% or something like that. Um, and there's no way near that now. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, and then like New Zealand's very unique and well. In the OECD countries, and not really having a capital gains tax and all of that kind of stuff, and 
that all plays a pivotal role in um, helping redistribute the wealth and not letting it all get concentrated in the hands of very few. I mean, um, we're right now we've got the worst wealth inequality in New Zealand since records began. So it's definitely not great. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's important too um, that looking at it really the, the the problem is a lot of these questions get tied up into these kind of moral debates about um, you know do, do people deserve the wealth they have or do other people deserve to be poor and the problem is it gets away from the once you get into that kind of those arguments um, which will always be there um, you get away from the the kind of more the, the facts of the matter which is that in our current system Possessing wealth or a certain amount of it um, basically guarantees you um, the accumulation of further wealth, and that is a problem when it comes to equality. Because what you have is you have a small group who are now very wealthy in all modern capitalist societies, um, and their wealth is going to basically increase constantly. And they're, they're kind of reaching escape velocity, as it were. They're going to get richer and richer, and as a result in our society, wealth is power to some degree, and they're going to get more powerful. And I think you see this in more extreme societies which have more extreme forms of capitalism, perhaps like the United States of America, uh, where you have you know, you know the influence of wealth on the political process is, is absolutely out of control, um, even compared to somewhere like New Zealand. And, um, you know, there's, there's authors like Thomas Piketty who... Um, has suggested um, the only way to get around this is questions of um, bringing in a uh, some kind of tax on wealth to redistribute that money, um, which doesn't actually um, necessarily end, end capitalism, but it, it certainly would create um, a greater level of equality and stop that dangerous concentration of wealth. But the other problem with this is, is how do you get it done? And um, having basically supported these ideas for the last 30 years we're now further away from them than when we started and it's very hard to see that um, in the absence of any uh, social democratic party in New Zealand I mean you have a centrist Labour Party a Green Party that seems to be kind of wavering in its commitment to uh, these issues um, how, how's it going to happen and even if you did achieve it in New Zealand then you'd be crunched by global capital very quickly so um, the question is then it, it turns into an international problem um, which is a very big scale so um, yeah that's a, an interesting conundrum we have in New Zealand yeah. <laughs> yes go ahead <laughs> Go ahead. I was just going to say on that, um, because uh, like you were saying before, there's been a lot of movements throughout it that um, have tried to resist these neoliberal policies, but it's just kept going. Um, I find it quite sad sometimes when I'm trying to learn about neoliberalism and I happen across like articles and books or something from like maybe 2002 or something talking about how things have gotten so bad, there's going to be change soon. And I'm just like, that's, <laughs> I was one years old when that was published. Like, things had not changed. Things have gotten worse. Right, <laughs> you, yeah. yeah. Um, has your study of neoliberalism, which has been independent and interesting, has it changed your view of economics and society? Um, yeah, for sure. Um, I, was, I was talking about this yesterday, actually. Um, or like growing up, I've always been interested in this kind of like area of stuff. And I read, you know, economics books uh, throughout high school. And it's funny because when you don't uh, 
know much about like the subject. Obviously, I didn't know much about economics when I was just learning economics. Um, it happened across books that talk about arguments about how sweatshops are maybe ethically bad, but um, they're a fundamental part of the developmental process. Um, look at South Korea. It's so much better than it used to be because it had sweatshops in its development process. And it's like, when you're reading that at the beginning, you're like, oh, maybe, maybe that's that's how it is. But <laughs> when you actually, like, read and <laughs> if you step back, you're like, actually, that is not, like, sweatshops are not good. They are bad situations, and we shouldn't be justifying them as if there's, like, some sort of globalization, developmental thing that just has to happen and is just universally good for everyone. But, um, yeah, I think... Having a much wider scope, and I think I did the degree PPE, philosophy, politics, and economics, and I think it's really important when you're learning economics to not just learn a certain part of economics, to have a more broad scope, but that's me personally. I understand you can get through a course in economics without either studying either Marx or Adam Smith, if you choose to. Very easily. Adam Smith will probably always be, be mentioned, mentioned, but he's... Which you have and to got study. a lot of work. Yeah, and he can be cherry-picked very well. I mean, like, he's got passages talking about how landlords are parasites. Do you consider, but that's often not quoted. <laughs> do you consider economics a science, or is it more like uh, when you're studying history, you consider art, in a sense, humanities? And do you look at it, history in various ways? But if you had a scientific project, you may only look at it one way. Yeah. Um, well, for economics, back in like the 1800s, when uh, physics and everything, all the natural sciences really had in their day, and uh, economics kind of wanted to be the same, and there was a big push of kind of like the mathema mathematication of economics, using a lot of maths and making economics seem as much like a pure science as possible and um that's changed the discipline a lot to be kind of cosplaying as this natural science which i personally don't think you can really have that but there's quotes like just as the pendulum swings back and forth and like uh the physics thing i can't remember exactly so does the economic forces of the market um but a lot of that kind of the scientification of this economics rests on this model of human nature of like rationality and stuff that can be modeled because it's really hard to put models of uh, humans if you can't like say how they're going to act. So you have to define that. And I really re reject that um, idea of like this homo economicus, this economic man, um, which is a foundation of a lot of um, just like classical economics yeah. um neoclassical economics but um so personally i think it's when you study economics you can really see it like a natural science and there's a lot of mathematical models and all that kind of stuff that you know where the home you know is really parallel but you know where economic the word comes from it comes from the greek and it meant homemaker yeah yeah it's straight a lot. <laughs> yeah. But the um, David Longy once said that inequality is the engine of capitalism, is the engine of growth, goodness. Um, 
What do you, do you think either of you is the underlying basis of capitalism, and do we have to accept the idea that we have to have large amounts of inequality for capitalism to work, or for the economy to work? <clears throat> um, well, I think... Um I think that um, yeah, it's it's sometimes it's it's putting the focus on the wrong things. Like I I don't actually uh, inequality may be the engine of capitalism, but it's it's also maybe the um, product of capitalism. I mean, uh, and I've got a kind of. Uh, Bruce Jessen once described himself as an aberrant Marxist, which is kind of my, I think, a little bit what I am, yeah. um, in that I... Well, you and I have both been influenced by... <laughs> yeah, I mean, he, he was a very influential um, thinker for me, but um, I, I think the thing is that uh, capitalism develops in a certain way, and it is, has certain tendencies in it. Um, I think what has happened over the, happened over the 20th century is that um, people expected there was, it was just continue like it was, or there'd be a revolution or something. Well, what happened in the end? There was a kind of a, in a lot of countries, including New Zealand, there was a kind of compromise where some of the rough edges of capitalism were um, controlled, as it were, by pressure, basically coming from the working classes, from the voters, from the majority of people who actually wanted a bit more security and dignity in their lives, and thus you got things like public health, public education, and so forth. But at the same time. Uh, a lot of capitalists realise that those things are actually quite um, useful for capitalism to keep it going because if you uh, have a um, healthy and educated population, well, you can't have a capitalist system without a healthy and educated population and someone's got to pay for it. So there's a, a kind of interesting contradictions in there and interesting kind of forces at play. But I think that, um, you know, once again, I, I'm not utopian about it. I, I don't necessarily think in a, inequality is a is an aspect of human existence. But I think that if you have an economic system that is based around um, ignoring the consequences of extreme inequality, um, economic inequality, uh, then you will have problems, as we do now. Um, but once again, it's an ideology, so people have bought into it. And um, it, a lot of work goes into um, getting people to think this is the way it is, this is the way it'll always be. There's always people at the top, there's always people at the bottom, and that's just how it is, and just accept it. Um, I've never accepted that. I think it's a, um, I, don't, I don't think it's the case. Okay, I'm going to play some music now, and this is um, Billy Bragg, The World Turned Upside Down. <laughs> Claiming what was theirs We come in peace, they said to dig and sow We come to work the lands in common and To make the waste ground grow this earth divided We will make hope So it shall be a common treasury for all And a sin of property with to disdain No man has any right to buy and sell the earth for private gain By theft and murder now everywhere the walls rise up at their command They made the laws to 
as well The clergy dazzle us with heaven or they damn us into hell We will not worship the God they serve The God of greed who feeds the rich while poor folks starve We work, we eat together, we need no swords We will not bow to the masters or pay rent To the lords till we are free we are poor Ah, you niggas all stand up for glory Stand up now Stand up now Stand up now The orders came They sent the hired men and troopers To wipe out the diggers' claims Tear down their cottages And destroy their corn They were dispersed But still the vision lingers on Are you poor take courage You rich take care This earth was made a common treasury For everyone to share All things in common All people want Come in peace, the order's kind to cut them down That was uh, Billy Bragg Were you able to hear that, Libby? Yep, yep It's from the English Civil War, the English Revolution In fact, the leader of the uh, diggers became a Quaker So... Um, who benefits from neoliberalism most? Well, I think, um, I think Libby is the neoliberalism expert here, so I'll let you... <laughs> I'm definitely not an expert, but... Oh, well, it's all, it's all relative. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, like you see time and time again through neoliberalism, where it's been introduced in countries, it's uh, always resulted in people who already have wealth getting more well and those who don't have that wealth um in the beginning not being able to really um increase from that like uh you see like blue collar wages in the u.s haven't changed for the last 40 years and while the like richest one percent has like skyrocketed or like uh, CEO pay has increased over 300 times in that same period where the average you know worker hasn't seen any increase. Um, and like that's the kind of disparity that neoliberalism really brings. Um, so in short answer, it's those who are already wealthy just definitely benefit the most. Um, but then you also have like, um, like what Victor was talking about, like capitalism kind of needs at least like, you know, it, it needs workers. So it does need at least some sort of healthcare system available because you know people need uh, health care to survive um and you saw a lot of that kind of policies before neo neoliberalism took wave in about like late 70s early 80s in a lot of places um oh well, like the us uk and here um and you see before that with a much better like uh health system and all that kind of education system and whatever um that kind of had a better social safety net that kind of um it was still capitalism but 
it was kind of saving itself. Um, there was still obviously lots of inequality and all of that kind of stuff, but um, I read this book by Eric Olin Wright, who um, was a big socialist and um, activist and author, and he talked about how um, it was kind of capitalism that was much more sustainable than um, what we have now. Because what we have now, even though I was just saying it's been said before and hasn't really changed, but it's definitely not a sustainable form. Um, and while the wealthiest had benefited the most, there's still like, you know, even when you are the wealthiest, you might still want like nice, you know, public parks and all that kind of stuff. And that kind of thing all gets cut in deregulation and neoliberal policies. So in a way, everyone still kind of gets worse off. I, I would think of, when I think of comparative countries, I don't think of Sweden or Norway because they've got a lot of wealth. I think of Finland, and it's got a, a good welfare state, and they have the best, best educational system in the world, and they have no private education. Mm. And they don't, their natural product is forests and lakes. They don't have coal or, or iron ore. They don't have um, oil or something like Norway has. Yet they've been able to keep a reasonably good welfare state. And they even have the problem of having to actually have a military because their next door neighbor is Russia which they've had lots of problems with over the last couple of centuries. Yeah, well... Um, so it's a choice, isn't hmm. it? I mean, the kind of economic system we have is a human choice, would you say? Well, I think, um, yeah, it, it's to do with lots of... The, I mean, it's there is an element of choice in it, but I think um, a lot of it is to do with how nations have developed. And Finland being part of Scandinavia, it's kind of got models there that it could follow, even though it's a distinct country. Um, I mean, Iceland is another interesting country. It's a very small country, but it's a country that has um, similar um, uh, limited um, natural resources, um, but has managed to... Hmm. Uh, have a quite a high standard of living for the people, and a, you know, um, but it's had its problems too. I mean, the interesting thing, I think, the difference between about places like Finland and New Zealand is Finland has had a, and Iceland, for that matter, is um, I, I think they're they're they're, <laughs> they're a bit more equal, but they're also smarter capitalists. I mean, if you look at Finland, the uh, Nokia and the the big, um, you know. Um, Kind of companies like that, which they've they've adjusted to a kind of a technical service economy, whereas New Zealand's still blundering around in this kind of extraction economy, where we're reliant on highly polluting kind of forms of um, economic activity to um, make money, and it doesn't seem to have a very good social um, distribution of wealth either. So. Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because New Zealand at the time of the welfare state was regarded as leading the world in some of these areas. Obviously, there were a lot of other problems there, uh, historical problems, uh, issues around gender and, and, you know, the ethnicity and so forth, which were just hidden. But the economic uh, 
advance was better, I think, for most uh, people, and we're looking forward to a better future. That's been completely derailed now, and young people, um, if they don't come from a middle-class, wealthy background, are looking at a pretty uh, grim future in terms of home ownership, life opportunities, and so forth in New Zealand. And that has to change. Yeah. I think also an interesting thing about Finland, before... um, now unions are definitely growing in power and stuff you see in like us and everything with starbucks and whatnot but um before 2020 unions had pretty much everywhere lost power since like the height um in i think i can't remember in uh, last century but finland i think was like the only country that unions had gotten more powerful um which probably had some effect there too totally yeah i think unions probably have a huge effect on whether you can have a welfare state that defends itself and keeps yeah. going. If, if you want to um, have free market capitalism, probably one of the things you have to do is um, destroy the unions or at least cut back on their power and rights. Yeah. Okay. Now, what are, could you both talk about some of the multiple crisis that the world is facing and how they're connected to capitalism. How long's a piece of string? Um, yeah, well, uh, yeah, there's a word that I like. I mean, I, I'm interested in these words that I come across. And one word that I heard describing what's happening at the moment, which is doing the rounds at the moment, it's a bit jargony, but I quite like it. It's polycrisis. And a polycrisis is basically a many-headed crisis with interlocking parts. So you've got a lot of stuff going sideways at the same time, and it's creating... Um, interlocked problems and each of these problems influences the other problems and probably makes them worse so to kind of give an example of that is an interesting example we've got at the moment is that um, what you have in uh, we've experienced in New Zealand we've had a pandemic um, which is was was always going to happen and will happen again Um, at the same time now we've moved into the mode of um, climate change being a reality and extreme weather events are going to happen all the time these two things have um, created a crisis in the transport sector our supply chain um, which is something that I involved with in my work as as a unionist in the transport sector and that has you know, uh, that means things, for example, like the ability to get goods around in a cheap and quick way, that's being undermined and it's no longer being possible. But, um, and we're seeing a lot of damage to our um, infrastructure as well, which a lot of money hasn't been spent on in, uh, in terms of like upkeep or development in the last um, 30 or 40 years. Like we've had a lot of money spent on highways and not much else. So um, all these things fit in together. I mean, in the world, wider world, we see war and stuff, and that, once again, that has an effect on um, <clears throat> everything. Now, once you get a critical mass of these things glomming together, um, you, I think, see kind of the end of the system. Now, I'm not necessarily talking about a sudden collapse or uh, apocalypse by 12am Tuesday, but um, more a case of you can't carry on when all those things are undermining the basis of the system, which is global capitalism, neoliberalism, the quick, the fast and easy movement of goods and services around the world. That's becoming 
less and less possible as time goes on, and I don't think there is a fix for it. Um, <clears throat> I mean, there's going to be some uh, advances and progress and, and technology and so forth will advance in some areas, but in other areas, um, the basic problems of the systems are getting too great. Now, once that starts to happen, um, we're going to see things go backwards, and that is going to be an interesting situation because I don't think that... New Zealand, or for that matter, any modern society around the world, is in any way ready to deal with those kind of problems. And when they do happen, they'll have a very bad effect on our uh, way of life, as it were. So that's my cheery message um, for <laughs> Tuesday morning. Mm. Um, do you think... Well, I look at the United... I was born in the United States for all my sins... It's not your fault, Marv. <laughs> <laughs> and um, what we've seen there is for the last 50 years a complete neglect of infrastructure, and it's caught up with them in everything from health care to roads to, to water, particularly water in Flint, Michigan. And I think the same thing's happening in, the, in New Zealand. I think it's probably happened less in Northern Europe. Yeah, well, I think that's, that's probably right. Gonna, yeah. So doesn't that... But they're still not talking about taxation. Not really. Yeah, they're talking about taxation, but always about lowering it. <laughs> yeah, lowering it. Yeah, but, how, yeah. <laughs> yeah, how are you deal with... Cyclone Gabriel, how do you deal with um, Hawks Bay if you lower taxes? I mean, this, yeah. is, the, this is ignoring the fact that our ed- education and health care is um, below power, that it isn't really doing its job, and it's not allowed to because it didn't have enough money. There may be other th- issues involved in it, but basically you're not going to get an improvement unless you're willing to pay for it. So why... There's not a, a there's not a major party that's talking about taxation. Even the Greens mention it, but they don't really seriously talk about it. Why is this? Yeah, I think it's really interesting because like tax isn't really seen as something that produces like for a lot of people they just see tax as like the government robbing you, not like this is money that goes towards important stuff. Um, and I think like a lot of that is like people don't like how the government spends the tax or something like that. But um, there's also been like a massive push by like proponents of neoliberalism and all that kind of thing to like frame tax in that way. I think a very interesting like case study is in the US when the death, the so-called death tax was um, voted to be repealed and it was um, the inherited tax. That was only paid by, uh, I can't remember the exact um, number, but it was like something like 0.6% or even less of the people um, in in, uh, the US. Um, And it was the very richest and it was anything over like a million dollars or something inheritance was getting taxed. Um, And it was reframed as the death tax and something that was going to steal everything that you are, your hard-earned money when you try to give it to your kids when you die. And there was a massive push from the working class to re- 
uh, like a lot of people from the working class voted to um, repeal this tax, um, which ultimately was never going to affect them apart from helping fund stuff that would help, you know? Um, so I think all of the ways, like how tax is framed and seen, um, and it's like deliberate naming something like the inheritance tax as a death tax and framing it as something that is going to be so terrible when really it's never going to affect anyone but the very richest. Um, but yeah, so like for people to accept the idea of taxes being raised, there needs to be, in, in my opinion, more of a connection between taxes and, you know, this important infrastructure being like happening. Um, or at least like a, like a more connection in your mind kind of thing. But yeah, I think, which I think has, yeah, sorry. I think when I came to New Zealand in the 70s, early 70s, taxation was not near as unpopular as it is now. Yeah. And I think it's been partly, there's been a real movement from those who benefit most by not paying taxes to make taxes ugly and ugly word. And it succeeded to some degree. That, For sure, yeah. And the most of the politicians, to be honest, haven't really experienced extreme poverty. Some of them have, and some of them brag about it. That some conservative politicians say, "Oh, I grew up in the state house," and you get that too. But most of them have been. That's interesting. The people who made education. Um, so you had to pay for your education, had all gone through university with free education. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a bit ironic that a lot of the people saying it makes sense for if you're going to go to university that you should pay for it, the user pays kind of idea when it's like a lot of those people benefited from not having to pay. <laughs> but yeah. Now, how do we how do we get people to talk about things like taxation and socialism? <laughs> well, I think that um, I don't think there's any shortcuts. The first, I think, the first thing that's important to consider here is that there is not a ready-made audience for these <laughs> discussions. Um, I mean, people are interested in, as, as Libby alluded to, people are interested in taxation if it's about cutting it. Because the people who run society um, have done a very good job in putting a pair of scissors to the connection between the tax being paid and the things being done for you. Now, I mean, the thing is, at the moment, there's an awful amount of dishonesty about it with politi politicians. Because, you know, despite the rhetoric... The Labor government has not made any major shifts towards um, reducing inequality. Now, I'm not saying that there would even be possible, because um, I don't think there is actually like a there's not a popular movement for it. There's not there's nothing there to support it. But I don't believe that they have any intention of doing it. It's not like they're frustrated. They're just not interested in it. They they see this as a kind of balance mm. we have to get, and maybe we need to do something about the. Mm. 
um, you know, the housing and so forth, but it's very low-key. Um, and I think, um, you know, to, to give them credit, I think they did a reasonably good job with the COVID situation, although there were some unintended consequences that came out of that, like a massive transfer for of wealth um, to the already rich, which seems to be something that happens under Labour and national governments. But on the other hand, you've got a national party at the moment that's very much... Um, talking rubbish it's kind of going saying oh well how are we going to save money well we're going to cut the money for consultants now don't get me wrong I, th- I, I think a lot of money for consultants should be cut but that's not going to pay for anything like the amount of money needed to fix what's wrong in New Zealand and just basic infrastructure I mean most of the money going out of the government expenditure is going in fixed costs it's like super so the National Party will never fiddle around with the National Super because they'd get the flamethrower put in them by all their um, <laughs> elderly supporters. And, and rightly so, you know, because I think it's a, it's a good thing. So um, this is a this is contradiction, and I think what's going to go along, happen, in my view, is there's going to be this ongoing um, dishonesty and people duck-shoving and pushing the problems down the road until eventually it all falls over there's a big ex- explosion, metaphorically speaking, and um, the problem comes home, and, and we actually have to do something about it then and there. But no one's got any ideas. But I would like to think that at that point, the kind of ideas that we're talking about, like uh, um, which could be social democracy, which could be democratic socialism, which might be another form of socialism, might suddenly seem a bit more relevant than they are now, where I think most people just accept the status quo, even if they're not particularly happy about it. Haven't people on the liberal left actually uh, found that they can talk about everything from colonialism to personal identity with great earnestness, but the left hardly ever seriously talks about economic inequality. Why do you think that is, Libby? Um, I don't know. I think I personally... What I've come across is a lot of talk about income inequality and there is wealth now. inequality, okay. but but that also, I mean, that's a lot of what I look at. So that just could be biased towards what I'm, you know, <laughs> searching for and what gets told to me, kind of thing. That could but, be good yeah, news. personally, I've seen that. Um, it, like uh, Chloe Swarbrick, um, she's been uh, quite like uh, bringing up the income inequality in New Zealand quite a lot and the wealth inequality. So. That's something cool for New Zealand. Um, someone really, you know, talking about that quite a lot. Yeah. How about you, Victor? Uh, well, I think that's probably a subject for its own BBC series, uh, that one. But um, I think uh, the, the situation is that um, it is interesting. I mean, I'm not quite sure the reason for it. But um, there's a cynical part of me that says that capitalism is a very good system that is good in absorbing certain certain types of social change, which might actually be good and progressive and positive social change, but it doesn't actually change the underlying system, economic system. And I think that's what we've had at the moment. We've had a lot of progress in areas around... um, uh, you know, gender equality and, and kind of the whole range of those issues. Um, but nonetheless, at the same time as that progress is being made, you're, you're going backwards at a rate of knots with the economic 
uh, side of it and the class side of it, which is, I don't think, I mean, um, it's interesting to hear that, um, maybe I'm a bit out of touch, it's interesting to hear, and good to hear that um, Libby is, you know, thinks that something is being discussed, and maybe it is, um, but I... I mean, I just guess my feeling is just look at the kind of, um, without wanting to go down this this track necessarily in this conversation, just look at the absolute um, rage and kind of uh, demented, kind of unhinged debate um, that's happening about things like co-governance, you know, where people are extremely passionate um, for their points of view and there's a really quite a, a, a strong, probably unhealthily toxic debate going on. Um, but compare that to the debate, debate about things like housing prices. Everyone complains about it, but it's just kind of seen as something. It's the weather, you know, or maybe not the weather so much anymore because the weather's changing. It's just like the moon coming up and going down or the sun, you know, it's just, it happens. It's not a human system. It's just something that happens to us. So I think there's that difference. Some people, certain areas people feel there's a, they can debate about because they can have an influence or their views count. Other areas, and I think those are economic areas, I think a lot of people just see it's like a natural force as opposed to a human organisation. But, you know, I think at the same time there is a, always kind of a bit of a kickback bubbling bubbling away and, and maybe um, I'm just not tuned into it. <laughs> well, I was, yeah, I was glad to hear you say that, Libby. Because <laughs> I really think economics is a, it's about choices that people with, that have power maybe it may be a majority in some countries. It may be a majority of people that have a lot of power, or in most countries, it's a very few have the power. But the choice that they make probably influences the direction of the economy. Would you guys agree with that? Um, are you saying the choices that the the choices um, that people that have power? Oh yeah, make sure. Influence the direction of the economy quite strongly. Yeah. I think it's an interesting one because um, the people in the, there's a sense in which the, the system's running itself. I mean, we the people are doing the bidding of the system. I think it's gone from a. I mean, obviously, I'm not saying that people don't have a some agency and control over their everyday life, their decisions. Um, societies can make choices. New Zealand, there's plenty of choices New Zealand could make and probably still get away with. But nonetheless, it's the systems in charge. And it's an international system. It's a global system. Um, I hope I'm not sounding like some conspiracy theorist here, but it's just a um, kind of an international economic system that we're all completely integrated with to, to a large degree. Um, and the people running the show wouldn't be running the show if they suddenly decided overnight we're going to, you know, peace and love, we're going to hand out the, the, the free um, free Diet Coke or whatever. It's not going to happen because if they made those decisions, they would no longer be in power because the system itself is more important than the individuals that are filling the roles in it. It decides what we do in the sense that if you're running a business, if you suddenly decide that that um, shareholder profit is no longer your key objective, you're not going to be um, the the chief finance officer of that corporation for very long. Um, so yeah, I guess there's you know that's a maybe a little bit of a philosophical turn to it, but I think that that is that is something we have to take. Um, some consideration of is how the system itself is so powerful now that that individual people within it actually, even if they're so-called CEOs, have actually don't actually have that much power. 
Okay. Well, how do we... I think we've agreed that we're, we are facing certain crises, especially climate change. I mean, how does degrowth and capitalism fit together? Um, I think when you look at capitalism and like the multiple crises that it has connected to it, um, a big part you have to look at is like a massive part of capitalism is like profit incentive and a lot of well, everything really is geared towards creating profit and having the primary incentive of doing a lot of stuff profit, not like social good or something like that, um, creates a lot of problems. And um, another big part of capitalism is growth. Like you talk about the GDP, the gross domestic product, which has a whole host of problems in itself as a measurement. But anyway, like the GDP has to be growing every single year. And like a big part of capitalism is like, you know, your kids will be better off than you will because the economy just keeps growing and growing and whatever, which hasn't really been the case. And you don't have the ability to have just continual growth and finite growth with finite resources. Um, but like those two things have just uh, created an increasing like extraction of our natural resources. And also just like, you know, you make a lot more profit if you don't have to take care of all the like pollution you're creating to the environment and all that kind of stuff. Um, so you don't, you know, and you can poison waterways and you can do all that kind of stuff if there's not regulation around it, which in a lot of countries there isn't um, because, you know, that creates more economic growth. <laughs> but I think a big part of when you talk about degrowth is not – a lot of people get worried that that means, you know, they have to lose out a lot and they have to go back to ways of life that, like, you know, you can't have a washing machine, you have to start washing your clothes with washing boards or something like that. But a big part of degrowth is also not – that so much but making it that no one can have a 500 million dollar super yacht that like jeff bezos has just built that no one is ever really that one singular person is going to have that much of um an impact because that's not sustainable at all and just shouldn't exist so there will be under the idea of degrowth um some people's lives drastically reduced, but that's going to be the the mega rich, the uber rich. Um, a lot less um, will be for most people, right? Um, but yeah, so like the idea of degrowth is very much connected as well to the idea that you can't have endless growth in the system, and you shouldn't like, and you don't want your GDP just always increasing because, like, you know, you have things like after the Christchurch earthquake, the GDP increased because there was a whole load of more spending. That's because when things get destroyed, you have to spend to um, fix them. Like if your car crashes, then you have to spend to fix it, and that's an increase in the GDP and all that kind of stuff. But that's not, <laughs> like, making the best thing possible, right? Like that's, Okay. This might be a yeah, sorry. <laughs> good time to say thank you both for coming on. And... Um, I think we reached a point where we uh, realized so we have some big questions to answer and things won't necessarily go on as they are. Yes, thanks very much, Marvin, and thanks, Libby. That was a really uh, yeah. invigorating discussion. Thank you.
Yeah, thank you very much. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.